Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The lessons parents teach their kids can last a lifetime, including reinforcing stereotypes. Coming up, Dr. Laura Saunders, a child psychologist from Hartford Hospital, will join us to talk about how adults can have positive conversations about gender with children. Today, we're also focusing on misogyny. Where does this, quote, ingrained dislike or prejudice against women begin? A UMass Amherst lecturer will tell us more. That's later. Certainly, the culture you're raised in plays a part in your belief system. Now, what role do you believe you have in confronting hatred? You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, hatred can lead to isolated but deadly incidents like the Canadian man charged with murdering 10 people, eight of them women, and the attempted murder of 13 more in Toronto last week. The suspect is tied to an online group made up of misogynists who advocate for violence against women. The community is one many of us are just learning about for the first time. They call themselves incels. Joining us to talk about this group is Heidi Byrick, director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, also an expert on extremism. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I mentioned, this suspect uh, behind the uh, so this attack in Toronto last week uh, uh, appears to be connected to a group that call themselves incels. Can you tell us who they are exactly? Sure. Well, incel is short for involuntarily celibate. And the term was actually originally conceived by a woman who was, you know, talking about sort of relationships and the wish to have relationships. What's happened here? is that original idea has been twisted uh, by young men who believe that they are being denied uh, sex and relationships by women. They've come to see women, in particular feminism, as sort of an evil force that is denying them the right to control the lives of women and get what they want from them. And the community uh, that exists around the incel idea is made up largely of teen and young males, um, and it is filled with images of violence and rape. It's a, quite a scary place to live, and it's about as demeaning towards women as it's possible to be. How did it get uh, twisted in this way, in this online community? I mean, what were some of the catalysts? Yeah, well, a lot of the people who were involved in the incel movement and the larger categories, really the men's rights movement, are folks who came up through the gaming gaming communities and what was called the scandal Gamergate, where female gamers uh, were viciously attacked online in attempts to sort of drive them out of that world. It started in chat rooms like on um, the gaming site Discord, and the, the misogyny built from there. It's now that this kind of extreme misogyny brought by these gamers also exists in the white supremacist world of the alt-right. So it's happened over a relatively short period of time. I mean, these things didn't exist, you know, seven or eight years ago. So the radicalization has happened quite fast. I understand incels are also considered 
male supremacists. So talk a little bit about that term. And when did the Southern Poverty Law Center start tracking uh, these, this, this particular hate ideology? Sure. So that's right. There's a larger category of male supremacy, and it parallels to white supremacy in the sense that women are viewed in that community as, the, or should be, if, they, if these folks could have it, the property of men and to be controlled by men. They're basically considered to be breeders and providers of sexual relations, and they have no um, autonomy on their own. We started tracking these types of groups about five years ago, uh, when we started noticing that there were, you know, a, a movement, the men's rights movement really started with the idea that men needed legal advice to deal with custody issues. And it was relatively calm at the beginning, but it became more extreme over time. In other words, to demonize women as manipulating the courts, manipulating society, taking all the spots in college, um, very quickly became just ugly. And we made the decision this past year to add two of these groups uh, to our hate list because we could no longer um, ignore the fact that there's a direct parallel between white supremacist groups that demean all people of color in really ugly ways and men's rights groups that demean all women in the exact same way. So we added two of those groups to our hate list. Now I should say that for the most part, this universe exists online. It's not really formal organizations like the ones that we count for our hate group list. So although we've added two groups to our list, that really doesn't um, indicate the size of this movement, which has to do with thousands and thousands of people communicating on places like 4chan and Reddit. Heidi Byrick is on the phone with us, director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, an expert on extremism, as we learn about this extreme misogyny uh, movement uh, online. As Heidi just mentioned, a lot of us just learning about the incel, uh, involuntarily celibate uh, group online that's tied to this uh, suspect in the Toronto van attack last week. Now, Heidi, there was also another uh, case a few years ago, uh, an American in California California um, that was also uh, glorified in this uh, community. Tell us about him. Yeah, so um, there was a young man in Santa Barbara who went on a shooting and knifing rampage a few years ago targeting women. His name is Elliot Rogers. He's become a hero to the incels. Uh, He posted some very nasty video before this attack in which he talked about how the fact the fact that women were essentially oppressing him and not giving them what he want he also slid into um, some racist stereotypes and other things and then he then he engaged in this horrific uh, rampage that killed quite a few people and he if you live in the incel communities you'll see him referred to as a hero they talk a lot about um, him being sort of like a superman And also they talk about um, having a revolution. In other words, a revolution that would upset the more equal gender balance that we live with today than, say, 50 years ago and return this country into a place where men would be the final decider of what women are and are not allowed to do. Uh, And that that revolutionary conversation is um, particularly concerning because you usually think of that as something in the white supremacist world, right? We're going to overthrow the government. We're going to put in place a white government or a white ethnostate. And this parallels that in the sense that it would put men in the primary position and remove the rights of women. And that revolutionary talk is so tied to violence, and it's the kind of stuff that the Toronto van driver 
um, was also parroting. You on your uh, website again, Southern Poverty Law Center's website. Uh, you describe um, this uh, group or as a gateway drug to white supremacists. Why is that the case? It's it's quite interesting. A, a couple, quite a few prominent leaders in what's come to be known as the alt right, which is usually thought of as white supremacist movement, started out in that Gamergate world that I was mentioning, and in the game world. And as they became radicalized about women, right, treating women poorly, they also started to pick up ideas, um, neo-Nazi ideas, really extreme racial ideas. And that includes, for example, the Daily Stormer website, which is probably the most prominent alt-right website. Its leadership followed that path. And what's interesting about this is until six or seven years ago, in the white supremacist world, women were actually put on a pedestal. Of course, they didn't think of women as equal, but they considered them sort of the progenitors of the next generation of white children. And you didn't hear women being demeaned. You certainly didn't hear calls to have women raped. But that's all different now because of this injection of misogyny that started in the gamer world, started with hating women, and then began to uh, flow into white supremacy. So now a lot of people who started getting radicalized on misogyny are also radicalized on race or anti-Semitism. And so we have this really ugly mix of hating basically most of our society, right? Mm -hmm. If women represent 51% of the population, they're all now considered to be subhuman, plus all people of color. And and that's different than white supremacy in, in just very recent years. Uh, There's some uh, thoughts being shared on social media over the last week as more attention has been given to this uh, incel group online. The thinking being, you know, if they are uh, this extreme misogynist group, obviously isolated, they would there is a thinking that why why should we be bringing attention to them and what they believe? How would you respond to that, Heidi? Yeah, we get questions like that a lot, it also with white supremacists. And, and the fact of the matter is that these people are having an impact on our culture, an impact on young people, and also, you know, participating in what I would consider domestic terrorism. And we can't sort of wish them away by ignoring the problem. We have to confront it. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't have a whole lot of um, organized efforts to intervene in these radicalized radicalization processes. I mean, it's only been recently, for example, that the Facebooks and Twitters of the world have started removing this kind of material from their sites so that fewer people are um, exposed to it. But we don't, we don't have plans, ways to deal with this radicalization. And I think the first step is to look at it, to realize how violent it can be, and to at least know that it exists. So I don't think ignoring... Um, things that ex- result in mass murder uh, make sense, as unpleasant as it is, and the fact that that does mean that these groups get some more notoriety than they had in, you know, prior. When we talk about domestic terrorism, again, when these attacks happen, uh, they're described as lone wolves. Uh, but that there's a, you know, uh, there's a danger in that because you're not looking at this ideology behind the terrorism, the fact that you've had now two cases um, where um, the suspects are linked to this movement. Should people be concerned, Heidi, and what can they do? Yeah, well, I think I think people should be concerned. Um, I think the pressure on the social media companies is important here to at least reduce the amount of people who are exposed to this. But this is in many ways a law enforcement issue, and I do um, have problems when every when people are either described who 
engage in these attacks as lone wolves or as perhaps having, you know, various mental challenges. Because the truth is that they're all imbibing the same kind of sewer ideas. We know white supremacy leads to domestic terrorism, and it's very akin to the kinds of misogyny we see in this universe, which is just targeting women. And law enforcement are really the folks that need to do something about this. In the case of the guy in Santa Barbara, there was an attempt by his mother to get law enforcement to check on him, and they didn't enter his apartment. If they had, they would have found a whole lot of guns. He even wrote about the fact that if law enforcement had had gotten into that apartment, probably would have stopped the attack. But these people are so dangerous. I think of it as very much a law enforcement issue. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, why uh, this is not considered a hate group, so to speak. So if these, uh, 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 if there are members of this incel community that are targeting women, advocating for violence, why isn't that considered a hate crime? Uh, well, I would argue that it should. Our hate crime provision at the federal level includes attacks against women, um, and depending on the state you're in, many of them also have gender as category. And I would, um, I'm not an expert on Canadian law, but I would describe what happened uh, in the van attack there as a hate crime. I definitely would say that the Santa Barbara attack was a hate crime, and they should at least be counted for what they are, which are crimes that target someone for who they are. And that would, of course, be the case if it was all uh, Jews or all African Americans who were attacked, right? We would say that's a hate crime, like what happened in Charleston with Dylan Roof. So, you know, from my perspective, that they should at least be labeled that, if not domestic terrorism. Uh, you, again, are director of the SPLC's Intelligence Project. Uh, are, you, uh, are you seeing anything that, that shows that these extreme misogynist groups are growing online? They've been growing every single year. When you look at audience numbers, if you look at the number of people posting, this movement is absolutely growing. And like I've said already, it, it's merging with all kinds of forms of other ugliness, like white supremacy. And, and it's becoming a very toxic mix. So you go on white supremacist forums now and you read all kinds of ugly things about women as well. And we know that some of these places, you know, some of the big white supremacist sites can have 300, 400,000 users, half a million unique page views a month. So we're not talking about small numbers. We're talking about quite large numbers. Heidi Byrick, again, director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. Heidi, thank you for coming on today. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about masculinity. What role do men have to play in combating sexism and misogyny? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from the Southern Poverty Law Center about this incel community, this online community where members celebrate men who perpetrate or call for violence against women. Now, that's a form of extreme misogyny. But where does this dislike or hatred of women come from? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My next guest is Tom Schiff. He's joining us from the studio of New England Public Radio in Amherst, Massachusetts. He's executive director of Fallacies, a Massachusetts-based program that empowers young men to redefine masculinity through dialogue and theater. He's also adjunct lecturer in women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass Amherst. Tom, welcome to where we live. 
Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. As we mentioned, uh, you're a lecturer in this Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at UMass, and you teach classes focusing in on masculinity, uh, not often uh, thought of when we think about women's studies. So tell us about this field and why uh, you've been drawn to it. Oh, goodness. I was drawn to it for many reasons. I think part of it is that I had a mother who was a feminist and was there was always conversations about gender and what that meant in our house growing up. And so it's been part of my life, pretty much all of my life, I guess. Um, as far as teaching goes, I think that it's important for us to think about about gender. I think that f- feminism has told us that, that gender is an important aspect of who we are, just like race and class and those sorts of other identities and how they all intersect. And masculinity is one part of that. So how do we think of ourselves as as men, and what does that mean for us as a culture as well? When we talk about masculinity, uh, break it down for us when we think of that term, and how does it relate to our, our, our bigger conversation about you know, what leads to misogyny? Well, I think that when we talk about masculinity, we're talking about, often talking about sort of a dominant ideology or dominant way we're thinking about masculinity, so that there's certain messages that we get about how we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be, and I think Heidi mentioned much of these things. You know, we're supposed to be in control. We're supposed to be powerful. And and we're not supposed to have emotions We're not other than maybe anger, right? We're not supposed to cry. Those kinds of messages are instilled in many men from a very early age. And those are a way of dehumanizing all of us and then have an impact in terms of how we behave towards one another. So I think in, in regard to some of this piece around uh, the violence that we're talking about and the misogyny we're talking about, it, there's a piece of entitlement that's so strongly ingrained in these folks uh, who are doing things like driving vans into folks. But it, you know, the, the idea that, that somehow they are entitled to relationships with women, you know, he and Others like him and the person from Santa Barbara, I choose not to say the names, mm-hmm. um, felt like somehow it was their birthright to have relationships. And because they weren't having these relationships, they were entitled to be uh, violent. Uh, we know certainly that not all men grow up to be misogynists. Um, so I guess what we're trying to get at is, you know, wh- you know, wh- where does that switch get flipped in terms of, you know, again, these stereotypes and these belief systems that we learn as children uh, that can lead, again, to this extreme uh, hatred or, uh, you know, uh, idealizing women and uh Again, this dominant group of thinking that um, because you're a man, you're able to get what you want from a woman. Well, I think it's hard to say that where the the switch gets flipped. I mean, I think that I'm not sure there is a switch. I think that we are in a culture that inherently is misogynistic. I, you know, there's there's so much inequity between uh, women, men, folks of other genders that it's it's built into our systems. And I think that's one of those things that not everybody certainly goes, takes it to the extreme, but I think there's lots of ways in which that plays out. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I'll give you an example that I feel like is such a, it's related to this topic, is there's a concept that people talk about, the, the friend zone, right? You've heard that concept? Yes. So the idea, that's, that's a piece that's also about entitlement. You know, she should be interested in me because I'm a nice guy, because I'm this, because I'm that. 
rather than, okay, she's not interested in me. Right, so there's a way that gets put on the person who is um, friend zoning the other person. It's a strange term, but it's about, there's still a piece of that's about entitlement. And there's so many ways in which misogyny gets ingrained into us at such an early age. I mean, when, when we're young men, and even older men, when we get insulted, oftentimes it's misogynistic terms that are being used to insult us. If we're not acting the way that somebody thinks we should act as a man, we get called a variety of names. Those names often are um, degrading to women and comparing us to women. So as a very early age, we're learning, if I'm supposed to be a man, I'm not supposed to be that. I'm not supposed to be a woman. I'm not supposed to be feminine in any way. And so those are values and those are traits they get um, devalued within our culture. Uh, when so, we, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I think so much of it gets reinforced by peer groups. So depending on who your peer groups are, that's where that, that switch starts to get amplified Right, the idea that the folks that I'm hanging out with will continue to support that or not. Part of the work that we're trying to do is figure out how do we get them to challenge each other in those ways to say, okay, so you know, actually that, that those ideas are not healthy. Those are not worthwhile. Tom Schiff is joining us from the studios of New England Public Radio in Amherst, Massachusetts, executive director of Fallacies, a Massachusetts-based program that empowers young men to redefine masculinity through dialogue and theater. He's also adjunct lecturer in women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass Amherst. Um, if you want to join the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, we're talking about misogyny. Uh, pegged again to that, that case of extreme misogyny in Toronto, the the links between two from that suspect to this incel community. Uh, but uh, uh, as uh, Tom mentioned, uh, you know, many people believe misogyny is inherent in our culture. Why is that? We want to hear from you again, 860-275-7266. Tom, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about uh, this, uh, the challenges when you work with young men in combating uh, this kind of thinking in male culture. It's not easy to do. What did they tell you? Well, they actually tell me that they're not comfortable with with the ideas that are misogynistic or sexist or anti-woman. In fact, and there's research also that backs that up that says that most men really aren't comfortable with it. But we think that we're alone in that or that we're a minority in that. We think that, you know, so the loudest people are making the comments that are inappropriate or the jokes that are sexist or slut-shaming, rape jokes, things of that sort that are being said and other people are laughing. And they're, whether they're laughing out of agreement or they're laughing out of discomfort, but we follow these scripts that we think that we're supposed to go along with these things. And yet a lot of the young men really aren't comfortable with that and won't say anything. So part of what is really critical is giving them some skills, giving them some talking points, giving them some ideas about, so how do you challenge this? And the and the social pressures are really, mm, I don't want to say this, the, the social pressures are really very um, strict. You know, you're supposed to stay in your lane. You're not supposed to say much. You're supposed to go along, be a supporting actor of sorts. Mm. You mentioned, uh, I'm curious about the difference between sexism and misogyny. Um, to me, sexism is, is that system that's in place that continues to oppress women, to keep women in, in uh, subordinate roles. And misogyny is more like the tip of the iceberg of the hatred of women. 
Uh, That's us, connected, obviously. Mm-hmm. When um, you're, again, talking with uh, these young men and you mentioned the, the social pressures of, of, of not feeling comfortable speaking up, uh, sometimes those pressures come from people very close to them, uh, maybe a father figure or a coach. Uh, and so it's just, I guess, the peer pressure of not feeling that you can speak up. I mean, what are some ways that you mentioned trying to get them to be comfortable about uh, maybe uh, speaking up when, uh, you know, talk is uh, geared? towards, again, um, you know, sexualizing women and how it's not acceptable to talk that way. But again, it's not easy to do because you don't want to be judged by your peers. Right. Well, I think that one of the things that we try to let folks know is that there's actually many of you who agree with this, who disagree with what's being said, but you agree that we need to challenge this. And so once you start to speak up, others will join in. They may not join in right away, but they'll join in, or they may tell you later that they support what you're saying. And so finding other folks that you can get support from, that you can that you can continue to have these conversations. And yeah, you may end up being seen as that guy who's always being calling stuff out. That's okay. You're gonna that if that's what you who you are and that's what you believe, you need to speak up. And and you wanna find ways to give them we, we try to find ways to give them simple conversation pieces for whether it's locker rooms or classrooms, walking down the street, in the cars, so forth. Just being things like, you know, just or things like don't laugh at jokes or ask people to explain the jokes. Or, you know, I was having a conversation with some young men the other day and we were talking about comments that, that men make about women. And I said, well, one of the things when you say that, you're talking about my mother, my sister, my daughters, my grandmother my friends and women I don't know who also deserve our respect just for the fact that they're human beings. You're listening to Where We Live, and you can join the conversation as well, 860-275-7266. First, David from New Haven. David, go ahead. Oh, I don't think David is there, so let's try Eileen from Hartford. Eileen, are you there? Uh, Yes. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Tom. I'd like you to comment on the influence of pornography use on the negative attitudes toward women. All right, Eileen. Uh, would you like to talk about that, Tom? Again, some of the things that we see in our culture that influence these negative uh, uh, images, perceptions of, of women. Well, I think that in a lot of mainstream pornography, women are seen as, uh, like they are in mainstream culture, are seen as objects, um, seen as somewhat um uh, flat in terms of any sorts of personality, that they're there for men's pleasure, that it's not about um, consent is never anything that's ever discussed. Um, I'm not a full expert on this, but that's my understanding, that there's very rarely are there conversations like that, that violence is often, uh, or degrada- degradation is often a part of what's seen as um, pleasure, uh, pleasureful. And you know, a lot of young men are, and women actually as well, are getting their sex education from pornography. We don't have comprehensive sexual education in very many places in this country. And young people are interested in this. They want to have these conversations. They want to talk about it. They're interested in this. And so they're seeking out information sometimes from pornography. And so I think um, the, the caller, I forgot your name already. I apologize. Eileen. I, Eileen, thank you, um, is... You know, it's a great question because I do think that we're a lot of young men are getting their ideas about how they're supposed to be sexually, and a lot of it's very violent. 
Uh, Jack's calling from Hamden. Jack, go ahead. Yeah, how does anthropology, and you just touched on it, figure into all of this? You know, physical, brute force from the dawn of time. Tom? Um, how does anthropology play into it? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's always been divisions of labor based on whether or not we're talking about raising children, we're talking about um, gathering food, whether we're talking about protecting our, our group. Um, I don't, but I don't necessarily see, I'm not sure that, I'm not an anthropologist. I don't know if there are a lot of cross-cultural studies that say that um, brute strength or violence are certainly inherently part of the human species. In fact, there's no biological studies that I know of that speak to violence being something that's inherent in us as a species. Let's talk a little bit about uh, violence in this conversation. Again, we're talking about this peg to that attack in Toronto. Uh, we hear so often that uh, violence by men is very common. And, you know, how does misogyny play into violence against women? Again, uh, these, this incel community is a, a form of extreme misogyny. But in terms of when we look at how violence is perpetrated, um, not only in this country but around the world, uh, most of the perpetrators are men. Right. I, th I think it's important to, to say that most violence is committed by men, but most men are not violent yes. in terms of if we're talking about sort of the physical aspect of violence. I also think that men's silence is also a form of violence or at least a form of complicity with violence. I, th I think that with the um, incel folks, and actually I prefer just to call them misogynists. Um, I don't think we need to have a special name for them. Um, that's just my opinion, um, they're violent misogynists. I think that part of that is connected to, it's a, it's a cultural way of thinking about domestic violence. So domestic violence is also a form of individual terror, right? It's about power and control. It's about entitlement. It's about seeing the other person as, as an object, seeing the person as a commodity. And so that's on an individual level. So on a larger cultural level, folks like these misogynist terrorists are doing the same thing, but they're trying to continue, think about controlling a group versus controlling individuals, and they're probably doing that as well. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about where misogyny comes from and what role do men play in combating this problem. Again, not all men are misogynists, but we are talking about this, again, uh, because of what's been happening uh, in the news pegged to the end of the story in Toronto and links to another violent act uh, in California a couple years ago. We're getting a lot of calls, Tom. I wanted to take uh, Edson from Old Saybrook. Edson, you're on the show. Uh, what role do you think men can play in talking about uh, this issue of misogyny? Well, one of the uh, experiences I've had is that there seems to be a scripted communication between men and men and men and women. I'm in my 60s, and when I was growing up, uh, men didn't say nice things to each other, even if they were friends. They would give each other a hard time and embarrass each other, and somehow that indicated they liked each other. And uh, I found that that carried over into women. Uh, when you liked a woman, you might say she's attractive or this, that, and the other. Uh, and if it, that didn't work, you went into a more aggressive communication that usually resulted in the woman being put down and embarrassed and didn't lead to uh, uh, um, a pairing off of people, but it uh, kept the uh, male in kind of a, a dominant role. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll listen to the answer off the earth. 
Thank you for your call. So again, uh, the way uh, men are raised to communicate with other men and how that plays a part, Tom. Well, I think that what Edson said is really important, and he used the term scripted, and I, and that's part of the work that we do with fallacies. We talk about the, the roles and the scripts that we play as men that we're given and whether we question those roles and whether we question those scripts. So part of the, the scripting is about, a part of our work is about how do we re-script that. Because I think that Edson is, on, is absolutely right. There's ways in which um, that we speak about women oftentimes in groups of men. And for example, if we feel like we get rejected, then one of the things that we need to do according to the script is we need to find a way to put her down, to put it on her, to blame her because some, because we couldn't be inadequate, so it must be something about her, something about the way she is. And that's one of the ways in which those conversations happen, and then other men may reinforce that rather than saying, why are you talking like that? What, what does that have to do with anything? You know, So she doesn't want to be with you. Okay, so she doesn't want to be with you. So move on um, and, think about, and think about how it is that you are in the world. Mm-hmm. But I don't really want to hear that conversation. I want to hear you talking like that. I mean, I think that's one of the ways that we can begin to change some of those scripts is to just not go along with that. Uh, I mentioned that you uh, work at UMass Amherst, you're a lecturer uh, there in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies uh, program. Uh, you're uh, interacting with young college men. Uh, since the Me Too movement, uh, do you feel like there's a shift in how we talk about uh, issues affecting women and the role of men to also speak up? Yeah, I think that Me Too has um, had a great impact. I think that it's a, a tremendous movement, an unfortunate movement that it has to happen. Um, I think that there are a number of men, and there's been some already some survey research that's happened around this, around um, men beginning to rethink some of their behaviors and some of their past relationships and maybe even some of their current relationships. The place that I'm, I'm feeling... Um, challenged in some of this is I'm not seeing a lot of response to Me Too in positive ways. I think that a lot of men are afraid and afraid to speak up because people are going to call them out in some way. And that's something we need to figure out how to have some more uh, response to it in a positive way and also to engage with it but not try to take it over. I mean, this is it's a really important movement at this point in our in our history. And I think that one of the things that men need to do is think about how we can be allies. How do we tell folks that we believe, we support all survivors, and that we engage in other men in our conversations about this and what does this mean and how do we continue to be self-reflective and how do we have conversations about what consent is and respect and so forth. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucien Althethanchel. My guest today is Tom Schiff, Executive Director of Fallacies, a Massachusetts-based program that empowers young men to redefine masculinity through talking and theater. Also adjunct lecturer in women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass Amherst. Joining us today from the studios at New England Public Radio in Amherst, Massachusetts. So coming up, we're going to continue this conversation. If you're waiting to have us uh, take your call, uh, please hold, because we want to talk about how, as a society, do we change these views of masculinity It starts with what adults teach children. A child psychologist will join us next, and we want to hear from you. If you're a parent or an educator, have you thought about how adults unconsciously reinforce gender stereotypes? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about misogyny today and where these beliefs get their start. And we know the lessons adults teach children can last a lifetime, including reinforcing stereotypes about gender. Dr. Laura Saunders joins us now. She's a child psychologist from Hartford Hospital. Uh, Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So you heard the conversation earlier that uh, we were having with Tom about ideas surrounding masculinity. And we wanted to find out from your perspective when we talk about uh, these belief systems uh, that we grow up uh, to have as adults, where they begin. So when we're talking to children, the first uh, inklings of where they learn about uh, gender roles, whether they're positive or negative. So we know that the role of family plays a very large role. But the family, remember, is embedded within a community and with a a culture. And each this this country is very interesting because it's very regional, right? We know that the southern area of, of the country has much more rigid gender stereotypes and in the northeast we're considered a little bit more progressive, maybe on the west coast, the midwest is a little bit more conservative, but a lot of these are reinforced and and in some ways they're reinforced in direct ways, boys do this, girls do that. In some ways, they're reinforced by the role of church and religion. You know, uh, boys do this and girls must heed whatever boys say. Um, And there's a lot of very subtle messages. So they come in the form of both direct message and indirect message. But it doesn't mean we don't have a lot of room to make some changes. Uh, when we were talking about institutions uh, like the church uh, or um, sports culture, uh, a woman called earlier asking about um, how pornography plays into it. So lots of dis- different institutions where we're drawing on uh, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. But you did mention that uh, many adults, uh, and if they're parents, they may not uh, even realize that they're re- reinforcing these kinds of stereotypes. So can we talk a little bit further about some of the things that adults may say to kids that are reinforcing? these gender roles that they carry on with them as they grow. So the story I like to tell a lot is I was sitting at my daughter's dance studio and there was a, a, mo- a mom and a young boy sitting right across from me. This was several years ago. And the young boy was playing very nicely on his little handheld game with his legs crossed, leg, you know, leg over leg with both knees. And she visibly pushed his leg down and said, don't sit like that, girls, sit like that. And I was appalled because who's to say girls can cross their legs one way, boys can cross their legs another way. And that's one minor example. So in that that instance, what gets created is shame. Sitting the way a girl sits is shameful. And and that's one message, but you you multiply that times a dozen times a day, times, you know, days in the week versus a year, and you get a lot of messages about the way girls do things is inferior. And boys should not do things the way girls do things. So these are a lot of very direct messages. In the work that I do with young people, we're really working to break down a lot of gender roles, stereotypes, and and open it up. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've done a lot around, you know, girls can be doctors, boys can be nurses. We've really tried to break down a lot of those um, gender role stereotypes in professions, um, but it still needs to keep moving forward. Uh, you're touching on something a listener emailed us about, Fred, who wants to know uh, what can be, what more can we do uh, to uh, avoid this problem? You know, should we have more mixing of genders and activities at earlier ages? Should we take steps to break out of bubbles that social media has made possible? 
I, I do think the more we can break out of bubbles, um, we, we realize that you can have individual differences, but the more we emphasize the ways that we are alike or the things that we have in common, it doesn't mean that boys aren't special and girls aren't special, but we really need to emphasize overall strengths as opposed to constant separation. Um, the more we can do that, and, and really for young children, it also comes out in the form of books, right? How do young children in schools get socialized? They read a lot of books. They see what their teachers or classmates are doing. And I think your previous um, speaker talked a lot about that so- role of socialization. Um, you know, I, I think back to the scene in Greece, I, I like a lot of cultural references where, you know, Danny first sees Sandy and he's with his friends and he just says, you know, he kind of plays down that he likes her and, and talks disparagingly about women. And, you know, Sandy's all coy. But when he's with Sandy, he can talk nice to her. So we have a lot of scripts about how men and women relate to each other and that we can't be as joining as we really should be. Uh, with us also from the studios of New England Public Radio in Amherst is Tom Schiff, Executive Director of Fallacies, also Adjunct Lecturer in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at UMass Amherst. Tom, did you want to respond to what uh, Dr. Laura Saunders is saying about these scripts? I know you did talk about that earlier. Well, I do think that I, I think it's really I appreciate what Laura was saying. I think that those scripts are are very embedded in us, and I do think that the piece around part of the script is that if you do anything that is, if you're a boy, you do anything like cross your legs in a certain way, like Laura was saying, you get, you do get shamed for it. You know, you get shamed for crying. I mean, I've heard, I've seen parents uh, with kids who are two or three years old telling their sons not to cry because that's not what men do. And I'm like, well, that's, but that is what people do. And that is what uh, boys do. And that's what everybody does. I think the other piece of the script is that that there are many variations of what can be considered masculine or considered feminine, um, and th- th- those are things we also need to think about and reinforce that. I think the pieces around um, regionality that Laura was bringing up is important, and I also think thinking about how does sexuality play into this, how does race play into this, how does other culture and, and class play into the way we think about these things. We're going to take some calls. Uh, Tom from Newington. Tom, go ahead. Tom, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Sorry. Go ahead with your question. Um, I just had more, more or less of a comment. Um, it's just been my experience. I'm sorry. Tom, oh. <laughs> I guess uh, Tom isn't there anymore. We'll go to Rachel in Groton. Rachel, go ahead with your question. Oh, let's try... Uh, Okay, let's go to Nancy in Litchfield. Nancy, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, well, I guess we're having a little trouble with the phones. Uh, so uh, we were talking a little bit about the scripts uh, that uh, children hear or that adults, so we just, we don't even, sometimes even realize what we're uh, saying and how we can need to move past uh, that, those scripts. Let me see if, uh, if uh, one of our callers is with us. Let's try... Uh, Rachel in Groton, are you there now? Oh, 
All right, so let's just go back to our guests uh, in studio here with us. Um, so when uh, we're talking about um, the things that are influencing these scripts, uh, Dr. Laura Saunders, you mentioned uh, uh, cultural uh, references, uh, again, uh, the books that they see. I was thinking back to um, around the holidays, I have a son in an elementary school, and they were putting on a holiday skit, and it involved uh, uh, where the teacher had the, the boys wear the chef's hat, and the girls wear the apron, and carry uh, the rolling pin. And I remember thinking that that it's so young that they're getting put again in these gender roles. We know many women are chefs. We know many men bake. Right. So there. So that's that's a very subtle and perhaps even unconscious way to say girls do this, boys do this. And it creates a hierarchy, right? Because the chefs are considered more prestigious. Um, and the other thing that I also want to emphasize is something that Tom Schiff had said is that the sense of complicity, right? The more we stand in silence. I do a lot of work in the area of bullying and cyberbullying, and there's something called the bystander effect. The more we stand in silence and we don't speak up about, but wait, I want to be the chef in this too. And the teacher's saying, you know what? That's a good idea. Why don't you go ahead and go do this also? The more we stand in silence, the more it perpetuates the problem. And and they these group, some of these individuals do become lone wolves, and they join in these online forums that really create very serious hate groups and threats. So we need to stand up, and we need to speak out, and we need to teach both our, our young boys and our young girls how to speak out about injustice and how to bring forth some of the stereotypes that they're being subjected to. Uh, we got a, a call earlier, and he wasn't able to stay with us, but he was curious about uh, what kinds of seminars uh, uh, are, are offered in school to talk about the very uh, subject we're bringing up today, Laura. Well, I think, I mean, they might have different forums, but I think a lot of the things that happen are day to day. It's not just like the big assembly where they bring in, you know, a couple of speakers. It's the day to day things that are equally as influential. And the more we can allow our teachers, I, I, I have such incredible respect for teachers. They are the guardians of so much of our children's lives. Um, the more we can provide information and education to teachers and administrators about how to expand gender roles, how to look at things a little differently, the better it is and the better, the stronger the influence. It doesn't mean that you can get good information at school and then go home and be told that, you know, this is the way dads do things and this is the way moms do things. But at least then those children have some alternative perspectives. So as they get a little older and, and get a little more development under their belt, they can make some more decisions on their own. All right, we're getting a tweet that says gender fluidity provides a nice alternative to traditional gender roles. Again, it's not always about uh, male and female. Uh, I totally, I, so I, I love that. Yes, we are really moving in the field of child development and looking at gender in a more non-binary way, right? It's not males and females, that there's a lot more blending, which honestly is a lot healthier. We don't need to just have such strict, rigid gender roles and gender role stereotypes. So I, yes, I'm using male and female, but we are really looking at more along a continuum and less as a binary. Let's try to get one more call in. Uh, Nancy from Litchfield. Are you there, Nancy? Yes, I am. Nancy, uh, go ahead. We have just a couple minutes. Sure. I wanted to talk about what men can do and how uncomfortable it can be men to talk about this. 
in Litchfield on May 20th. We're having an event called Walk a Mile in Our Shoes that is supported by our domestic and sexual violence organization. We've got over 200 men signed up. They will walk a mile in red high heels through our streets of Litchfield, and they're raising money to bring awareness. And it's really men speaking up and saying this is not just a women's issue. This is really a men's issue, and it's something we need to stop. And they're getting sponsors, and they're bringing awareness, and they're lending their voice to what this issue is. And Nancy, what brought this event on? Susan DeAnthony Project is the domestic violence and sexual assault organization, and this is an international walk that has happened around the world, and Susan DeAnthony decided it was one way to bring attention, and we've had businesses, police, fire departments, rotary clubs, business are, are all participating in the event. And it's men saying, we've got to take a position on this. Well, Nancy, thank you uh, for your call, Alarb. So I love that, right? It's not a men's or a women's issue. It's a human issue, right? Respect and decency and care for the people around us, that's a human issue. That's not necessarily a men's right or a women's right issue. And Tom Schiff, again, you're with uh, New England Public Radio's uh, studio in Amherst. Uh, some, some parting words from you before the end of the show. Well, I would, I would say that I think that if we're talking about misogyny and violence, we are talking about a men's issue, actually. Um, not all necessarily all men, but it's an issue that men are the ones who are, are committing this. And I think that um, there's all kinds of ways that we need to speak up. And I think that events such as um, Walk a Mile in, in Her Shoes, um, which has been around for a long time, or White Ribbon Campaigns and things of that sort, are important. And I also think that the ongoing um, development and ongoing conversations and dialogues and programming that needs to happen and training for teachers and curriculum development and those sorts of things are all part of the solutions. Tom Schiff, again, is Executive Director of Fallacies, a Massachusetts-based program that empowers young men to redefine masculinity through dialogue and theater, also a, a lecturer at UMass Amherst. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here today. And Dr. Laura Saunders, child psychologist at Hartford Hospital and the Institute for Living. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much. Apologies to our uh, callers who are unable uh, to get on the air. Hopefully we'll revisit this topic at a later date. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>